Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hey listeners, this is Season 4, Episode 51, brought to you by Lifetree at PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. It's Julia here again, and I'm the producer of the podcast. 2019 is coming to a close, and we're bringing in a whole new year, 2020. So we thought it'd be a great time to bring back a best of episode to help you celebrate and plan for the new year. Let's join Rick and Becky as they dive into how Jesus can help us plan our goals for the upcoming year. Let's listen. Our topic for today's episode is embedded in our reality right now. So what happens after the rushing river of Christmas? It's almost like the river flows and then it bashes into a dam. <laughs> I had 20 Christmas cookies today. Yes, that's because uh, the Becky Nader, uh, this is Becky, by the way, and I'm Rick, if you're new to the podcast, the Becky Nader innocently, <laughs> wink, wink, uh, put a note out to the uh, area that we work in here at Group and said, hey, I've avoided sweets for months thinking that I would get to gorge myself on your Christmas cookies when it came time, and there's no cookies. The title was, Where Are All the Christmas Cookies? Becky gets right into it. She gets right for the jugular, and now... I've had, yeah. a, I've had a tray of Christmas cookies show up about every two hours our, for the last two days. Our hardened dough runneth over. <laughs> it's everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> it's really, it's really, you've created an issue, actually, Becky, because it's really difficult to walk past a table of cookies, uh-huh. don't you think? This is the best part about Christmas. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, and I mean, it's, it, it fits because, so if you're going to walk past a table of cookies constantly and say, well, I'm not going to eat a cookie every time I walk past there. What are you accessing? You're accessing your discipline. You're accessing your will. This is really the only framework we have um, heading into the new year for how it is that we change ourselves to grow and become a better version of ourselves and all this is, I mean, literally, if if you think about the topic of becoming a better version of myself, the only pathway, the only highway we can go down is the highway of discipline and willpower. We have no other models for this really out there, so we know that we're in for it when we decide that we want to grow in, in, in some area. We're going to talk about the, the transformation of ourselves, the, the growing of ourselves into a, the better version of ourselves in a completely different way today. We're going to talk about what, uh, how, how Jesus brought transformation in people's lives, and what went into that, and how that matters in our story as well, as we are people who long for transformation. So, uh, you know, but to start off, of course, we have to start off in the land of Pinterest. I'm not sure why that's a given or a default, but apparently it, it is. We have to start off in the land of Pinterest. So this is, Becky's, this is Becky's land. This is my land. So if you, everyone knows, I think by now, that if you're looking for like challenges, diet plans, workout routines, the fashionable, wonderful... Fashionable berets. Fashionable berets, maybe minimalist wardrobes, you know, anything that you can add to your... Wait, you know, wait a minute. Are, minimalist wardrobes? Are you talking about 
like a, nudist colonies? What no, do you a capsule wardrobe. You haven't heard a of what? this? It's a capsule wardrobe. You basically you have 33 items of clothing that can be used for they can be interchanged and they can be used in different ways and that's all you own is 33 items okay, of clothing. Okay, so I just want to point out one thing for any of the guys that are listening right now is that one word that a guy never uses is the word wardrobe. <laughs> Unless it's associated have, with some woman in their life, they, they, guys don't really have wardrobes. So the guy version and actually President Obama has this it's he has called, a wardrobe? No, he calls it his uniform. He wears the same exact oh. suit, same exact shirt. He just has multiples of them. So it's kind of the same idea, capsule wardrobe. It's just a That's minimalist idea. Like, it's like idea. Mark Zuckerberg wearing a gray T-shirt to he work also, every day. He also, he also has a, a uniform. Do you know what I heard about this? So I, I really resonated with this. So there's lots of things in my life that I want to be the same over and over again, and my kids give me no end of grief about it, but I eat the same thing for lunch pretty much every single day, and they think that is completely bizarre. But then I heard the reason why Mark Zuckerberg wears exactly the same thing every day um, is his belief is, or no, this was a, a research scientist who was trying to explain this behavior, and he was saying that for people who are hyper-creative, even genius-level people, they have to create some sameness in certain areas of their life to free themselves to be totally experimental and creative in certain areas of their life. So they have to have some things that are the same. So I promptly told my kids at dinner one night, the reason I have lunch the same way every day is because maybe I'm a genius. Have you ever thought of that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah they reacted the same way. Yeah. So, well, I no, I don't know what a capsule wardrobe is, but we are now far afield from where we were headed. <laughs> but we're we, were headed, we were headed into the land of Pinterest, which is which is uh, the okay. native land of the Becky Nader. It's so, also a place you can get very distracted. Yeah, so you, so, you found some stuff that was uh, really associated with resolutions and becoming a better you on Pinterest. So yeah. why don't, let's hear some of those. So I did just did a Google search on New Year's resolutions, and these are some quotes from Pinterest. Um, this year I'm going to, to break a bad habit, learn a new skill, be more like a person I admire, do a good deed, read a new book, try uh, to make a new kind of food. Um, this is another one. If you want 2017 to be your year, don't sit on the couch and wait for it. Go out, make a change, smile more, be excited, do new things. Throw away what you've been cluttering. Unfollow negative people on social media. Go to bed early. Wake up early. Be fierce. Don't gossip. Show more gratitude. Do things that challenge you. Be brave. Mm. Uh, those are all sound really hard. <laughs> um, and, other... and if you notice, by the way, as even two quotes into this, how much doing yeah. there is embedded in these. Be, do, yeah, action-oriented. You'll never change your life until you change something you do daily. The secret to your success is found in your daily routine. There's lots and lots of stuff on Pinterest about daily routine, routines, by the way. Mm. This year, I want to go on more adventures, be around more good energy, connect with people, and learn new things I want to grow. Okay, so we're kind of setting this up a little bit to say that these are common messages we hear in the culture. Yep, they're all and, over the place. And there's something hidden in them that is a hidden fallacy that, that we believe is embedded in them that kind of sets you up for the cycle of disappointment in these. So w why don't you talk a little bit about w what you see as the underlying fallacy underneath these 
these statements? So uh, the, one of them is that the, all of the statements are, are really vague. Like, what does grow mean? Could be a little bit. It could be a lot. A lot of these things are just really vague um, and unclear. And then they're also, they are also extremely reliant on, a, on huge amounts of discipline. And the thing about that it, that's a little tricky about New Year's resolutions um, and setting them on your own and then leaning on your own strength for them is that it doesn't really give any room for Jesus to kind of guide where he wants you to go. And they're all kind of centered around, I don't feel like I'm the person I want to be. And I, I'm looking at my life, I'm evaluating where I'm at, and I'm not where I want to be. And so I'm going to try all of these things so that I can be next year where I want to be and be the person I want to be. Yeah, there's an interesting dynamic relative to Jesus about where we get the strength to do things. And it's it's fascinating that um, on multiple levels, Jesus says something like, I'm not pointing you to the right way, I am the way. I'm not pointing you to love, I am love. I'm not pointing you to the door or the gate or the way. I'm it. What he's trying to get across to us is he's not asking us to find a more disciplined path, and he's going to help us find what it is and put put our efforts toward that. He's saying, if you will attach yourselves to me, you'll find your way. You'll find your path. You'll, you'll find your truth because I'm not just pointing you to the truth, I am truth. He's continuously inviting us to attach ourselves more deeply to him in relationship, and when we do, we get the fruit of that attachment. That's, as we've talked about before, that's the whole point of him saying, um, if you're a branch, you need to abide in the vine, and stay abiding in the vine, because the vine, who is who is me, will give you my life, and it will flow up through your branch and produce fruit. Well, this is a very un-American thing to embrace, the idea that our whole focus would be on attaching ourselves more deeply to Jesus so that the life and strength that He has will transform us and produce fruit naturally in us. What we're used to is producing fruit based upon our own efforts, our own self-discipline, and then we can, you know, sometimes secretly, sometimes overtly, take pride in the fruit that we've produced. And Jesus is suggesting there's another way. How about attaching yourself to me? So I thought what we could do is explore a story of uh, transformation that is uh, very well known, but we don't slow down to pay very good attention to it sometimes. It's a story about uh, an encounter that a man named Saul had with Jesus. It's in Acts chapter 9, um, and it's, it's really just to, to set the preamble before I read a little portion of this. Um, Saul ha, uh, was a Pharisee who'd been trained by Gamaliel, who was the rabbi of the ancient world, um, only had uh, around a hundred or so students, quote-unquote, in his entire life, he was the it guy, and if you were trained under Gamaliel, it means that you were trained, uh, I, I guess you could compare it to, you were trained under the most decorated, respected professor at Harvard. Um, but not only did you go to that professor's classes, you lived with them. You learned his ways and the ways that he thought and the, and the, uh, the uh, ways that he, that he saw life. 
he sort of, his presence infected you. Well, this was the man named Saul, who had been trained under this man, and so Saul was brilliant, one of the smartest men on the face of the earth at the time, and he was a letter-of-the-law kind of Pharisee, and so that's why he was persecuting the Christians in this early time, um, in the early time of the Church, because he found it to be a, a heresy that, that these people were following Jesus as if he was God. So he set out to quash this movement within uh, the ancient time of the Jews, and uh, he was all in. I mean, he, he participated in the martyrdom of those who were following Jesus at the time. So he was a, he was a smart dude, and he was a committed dude. And then uh, we get to Acts chapter 9. So let me just read you a little portion of this. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, and that is the followers of Jesus, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. The man who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now I call this uh, Jesus going all Tony Soprano on Saul. <laughs> he took him out, knocked him, off his, knocked him off his horse, blinded him, and said, Why are you persecuting me, Saul? And this is the start of a radical transformation in Saul's life. He comes out the other end of this experience, um, literally Jesus sort of wrestling him to the ground and forcefully confronting him in the trajectory of his life. Saul comes out of this, the other side, the, the Apostle Paul. And it's the same Apostle Paul who at one point said, I've determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. So this man who had once with murderous intent persecuted the followers of Jesus comes out the other side of this experience as a man who grows into this central truth of his life. I've determined to know nothing but Jesus. So, uh, of course, if you had been persecuted by this brutal man um, and just the mere mention of his name caused you to fear what could happen to you, and all of a sudden he shows up in your circles and says, I've had an experience, a transforming experience with Jesus, and I'm now with you, not against you. You might have a few, uh, like, it, it would be as if an ISIS member came to you and said, I've, uh, I've repented of my, my past life and all of the murderous things I've done. I'm a completely changed person. Can I join you instead? You might wonder, <laughs> is he really converted? Is this just setting us up? Is this him trying to infiltrate? Um, but this is Saul's story. The movement from Saul to Paul is not just an, a, 
a man getting a new name. It's a man getting a new identity. So how does this, how does this story of Saul to Paul um, overlay our own desires for becoming a better version of ourselves, for transformation in our lives? What's something that sticks out to you about this, this, this story of Saul into Paul, Becky? What, what's something, as you think about this, that, that kind of uh, sticks out in this story? Well, I think um, in a lot of ways, in most of our experiences, we've seen we've seen discipleship sort of be like this, you know, read, study, apply method. Um, it's a, a process that takes a lot of discipline and time um, and understanding of Jesus. And in this encounter, you have this man who just in an instant is completely changed. He's he's going to go from chasing these people down, hunting them down. Um, so that he can have them killed to joining them on this mission. So right away, it's like Jesus can just make an instant change in your life if he decides that that's what the change needs to be. Yeah, and the the part of this story that um, is the turning point for Saul, he's, he's blind, but um, Jesus says to one of his disciples named Ananias that he needs to go visit Saul and lay hands on him and pray that he would have sight again. And of course, Ananias is afraid of that, of that possibility. You got to be kidding me. You want me to go to the enemy and pray for his healing? But Ananias is obedient. He goes and prays for uh, Saul. And here's what uh, the, the Lord says to Ananias to help him understand what's going on here. He says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. What a fascinating <laughs> thing to say. And then Ananias goes and lays hands on him and prays that his sight would be uh, uh, fulfilled again, and indeed uh, Saul regains his sight and his name is, is changed to Paul. So I think about this in my, in my own life, my own trajectory of uh, longing for transformation. I lived, I, I would say, a pretty conventional Christian life for most of my life, simply trying harder to do better in the 5,000 different ways that we're, the followers of Jesus are supposed to try harder to be better. I was an average, conventional, church-going kind of person. I also was a speaker. Uh, I spoke around the country trying to help people in pastoral ministry grow in the tips and techniques of ministry, and I did that for a long time. But I reached this place where I had a growing sense that all of this effort and all of the tremendous willpower that I had invested in this and all of the discipline that I had mustered to grow in this way didn't match my own experience of transformation. Didn't These ways of trying harder to be better didn't actually work in comparison to the way Jesus was actually transforming me, and I became bored with all of these uh, try-harder-to-be-better uh, pathways that I've been pursuing, and I became more and more interested in the alternative path that Jesus had laid out for us, the transformative path. So um, uh, I used to talk about a, a wide variety of things, but since this experience, of, uh, it was a very it was an actual moment in time when I re- recognized I'm bored by everything but Jesus now, and when I acknowledged that to myself, I haven't really spoken in the last 15 years about anything other than drawing near in intimacy to Jesus 
in a thousand different ways, but that's all I ever speak about. And it's not because of discipline. It's simply because that's the, the momentum and fuel in my life. So um, if we want to experience real freedom, I think the path is greater intimacy with Jesus. And I have a friend named Ned Erickson who uh, I was just getting to know uh, early on in our friendship, and I really liked him a lot. We were kindred spirits. And at the end of our first meeting, he said he, was, he, was, he felt the same kind of kindred friendship that I did, and uh, he was excited. It was a, it was a new friendship, and, and we spoke the same language, and, and it, it felt like, oh, I found a brother here. And at the end of that, he said, uh, you know what, I'd love to share a formula w- with you for uh, spiritual growth and transformation. And I said, oh, you've got to be kidding me. After this fantastic conversation we've had, you want to give me a formula? I said, Ned, I'm just being honest. I, I don't have any stomach for formulas anymore. And he said, well, I guess it's not really a formula. It's really more like a progression. I said, all right, tell me what it is. And then this is what he told me, and this rocked my world. He said, get to know Jesus well, because the more you know him, the more you'll love him. And the more you love him, the more you'll want to follow him. And the more you follow him, the more you'll become like him. And the more you become like him, the more you become yourself. Oh, is that last phrase that just upended me. I just didn't see it coming. And as soon as he said it, I was both intrigued and I knew that it was true. What he's really saying in this progression is, um, as we come to know Jesus more deeply, we'll come to love him more deeply, and we'll want to follow him naturally. We'll just be drawn to him. And as we follow him more naturally, we become more like him And what I was always taught growing up as a kid is, um, you know, less of me, more of him. This idea that as you got closer to Jesus, if you were really a follower of Jesus, you'd lose yourself. Um, Jesus would sort of take over and you would diminish to nothing. That was really the picture of humility. And it it always was a strange path, because it's it's not um, embedded in our nature to simply obliterate ourselves. And so when Ned said, um, the, mo- when the more you become like him, the more you become yourself, something unlocked for me. I realized, that is so true. As I had be- been getting closer to Jesus, um, more drawn to his heart, following him more because of it, becoming more like him because of it, I was uh, experiencing myself for who I really am for the first time. And I loved the impact of um, who I really was on other people. I started to see fruit sprouting up in my life that I'd never seen before, simply because I was becoming more myself, the person that Jesus created me to be. And what unlocked that was this movement toward the heart of Jesus. So I just said a bunch of stuff there. What, what, what's, what, what's something that you resonate with, uh, with what I just said in, from your own story, Becky? Well, first of all, this is completely the opposite of New Year's resolution, <laughs> right? And and just for context, we um, if you don't follow us on Facebook, um, you might want to. It's called The Jesus Centered Life, um, and you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, t- uh, Pinterest, etc. We have these visual quotes, and this is one of them um, that we, we post uh, several a day, just kind of thoughts, that's quotes from Rick's book, quotes from our Jesus Centered Bible. And I 
I um, am, I'm one of the people who monitors this community and I got an, an alert from Facebook. This, um, whatever, this image that you have here is performing 95% better than all of your other images. <laughs> so of course I'm like, okay, what is this image? And it was this quote and you know what? The I progression think that we just talked about. The progression that we just talked about that Ned said. And, um, and I think it's, it's such a different message. Like Rick said, it's different than what we normally hear in Christianity. And it's so different than what our culture is, fe- is feeding to us. Our culture says, you're not right. Whatever it is about you, it isn't right. You're not on the right path. You need to improve yourself in several different ways. And the way to do that is for you to hunker down, get a plan, stick to it, be perfect, and uh, then you'll be good. You'll be the person that you're supposed to be. But actually, this idea of the more you get to know Jesus and the more you follow him, the more you become like him, and then you become more like yourself is totally counter. So, so what if... The pathway is not trying harder to build a better person, but what if that person, the real you, is already there, Mm -hmm. just waiting to be set free? What if you're not building something or forming something yourself or disciplining yourself to, to grow into that person? What if that person already exists but is captive and needs to be set free? This, I would say, is theologically accurate, because when Jesus starts his ministry, he quotes Isaiah and says, the very first thing he says about what he came to do is, I have come to set captives free. Jesus chooses this reference to frame what he's here to do, and it's not just on earth he he came to set captives free. The people at the time thought he meant, oh, he came to be a military ruler, who would set us free from the Roman oppression, they were mistaken. He meant something much deeper and more profound. We are captives to our, our false identity that has been marred by sin and by the distorted mirrors that we've grown up around that are mirroring back to us uh, who we are supposed to be, and a lot of us have capitulated to that distorted image I just read something that uh, on, on a private Facebook page we have for some pastors that I'm involved with, and one of them just posted and said, I'm in one of those days where I just feel like I'm not enough for anything in my life. And I wrote back and said, that's the central lie of, of humanity. This is, uh, this is the enemy of God's favorite whispered lie to speak to not just men, although it is the most prevalent lie that Christian men hear is, I'm not enough, but it's true for all of humanity. It's Satan's favorite lie to whisper because it has such traction in our broken souls. We tend to believe it when we hear it, you're not enough, because we have plenty of evidence to show us that we're not. So my response to him was simply based, really, out of the progression. The only way out of that place is to come to know Jesus more deeply, so that you trust what he says about you more than you trust the lies or even your own opinions about yourself. So this is obviously easier for me to say than for it to happen, but I was thinking about, uh, Becky and I were talking the other day about one of my favorite films of all time, the uh, version of the Les Miserables story by Victor Hugo, that was not the musical version. Not uh, the Anne Hathaway version. Right. This is the version from 10 or 15 years ago that starred Liam Neeson as Jean Valjean, 
and Uma Thurman as Fantine, and Jeffrey Rush as Haver, the evil police chief. So this is such a powerful story of redemption. And uh, a couple of weeks ago in the small group I lead with uh, teenagers, we took about a 12-minute segment out of the film that followed the story of Jean Valjean and Fantine to try to help them explore the, the true mission of Jesus in our lives. So let me just set this up for you a little bit as a metaphor of a story, and then encourage you also, maybe over the holiday break here, when if you're taking some vacation time and have more time with your family, watch Les Miserables, the, the Liam Neeson version, because it is such a powerhouse redemptive story, and there's so much embedded in it that is about setting captives free and transformation. But the story, uh, just very briefly here, is of a ex-convict named Jean Valjean in revolutionary-era France, who was imprisoned for 19 years of hard labor for stealing a loaf of bread for his hungry family. And while he's in prison doing hard labor, he becomes a shell of a man, a destroyed man inside. Um, he's bitter and angry, and he trusts no one. When he's finally released, he gets a yellow card, a yellow identity card, that basically guarantees he can't get a job. So he gets out of prison, but he's in a worse prison then. While he was in prison, uh, one of the prison guards was a man named Haver, who later becomes police chief, and happens to be the police chief in Jean Valjean's um, own city once he's released. But Jean Valjean gets out of prison, has nowhere to go, no possibility of a job, and he's sleeping on a bench in the cold, and a woman finds him there and says, you know, if you knock on that door over there, you'll they'll invite you in and give you a meal and let you stay there. And Jean Valjean can't really believe it, but he tries it anyway, and it happens to be the home of the bishop of the town, and he's indeed invited in to stay and given a warm meal, but at night, Jean Valjean is lying in bed, in his warm bed, and, he, and he's dreaming about the brutalities he experienced in prison, and he wakes up, and, and he's in this place where he's remembering, that's who I really am. I'm a convict. I'm 19 years in a prison. I'm a nothing. And so out of that sense of false identity, he, he concocts a plan. He thinks, I'm going to steal the silver I saw that the bishop has and sell it, and that's how I'll get money, since I can't get a job. So he sneaks down to steal the silver in the middle of the dark, and uh, the bishop hears him and comes out to see what's going on, and Jean Valjean punches him and knocks him out and takes off with the silver. Well, he's caught, and the police bring him back to the bishop's home, um, and when they bring Jean Valjean before the bishop, the bishop says, well, he didn't steal it. I gave him that silver. I gave it to him to sell. In fact, he forgot to take the candlesticks that I was going to give him. So he tells the police to release him, and the police are just, un their, their mouths are dropped. They can't believe that this is happening, but the bishop says so, so they release him. And when Jean Valjean and the bishop are alone, the bishop grabs him by the shoulders and looks him in the eyes and says, Jean Valjean, I've bought you. I've redeemed you. Now go live your life for Jesus. So the rest of the story, this epic story, is the transformation that happens in Jean Valjean because of this redemption of the bishop the bishop has given him. He goes on to be a force of redemption in the world. He becomes a business leader and employs many people, dragging them out of poverty, and he becomes a political leader, the mayor of the town. And Along the way, one of his factory workers, without him knowing it, 
whose name is Fantine, um, has a child out of wedlock, and she keeps it a secret because that is a, a huge disgrace in that culture. Well, it's found out, and she is fired on the spot when it is found out. And this is disastrous because now she has no way of earning money to provide for her daughter. So she descends into prostitution as a way of earning money to provide for her daughter. And uh, she is beaten up and brutalized in the street one day by a group of men. And because she lashes out against one of the men, the evil police chief, Haver, it witnesses the whole thing, and instead of punishing the men, he intends to imprison her for trying to punch one of the men in the street. And so uh, he drags her into the police office, hears her story, and says, you're going to be put in prison for six months. By this time, Jean Valjean hears about what's happened, and he rushes down to the police office and tells Javert that he is to let her go, because he's heard the true story, and she's done nothing wrong, and she's to be released. Well, even though he is Fantine's source of salvation, she's so angry and distrustful of him because she believes he's behind, that Jean Valjean is the one who had her fired. She spits in his face. Now Haver really wants to put her in prison, and Jean Valjean persists and says, no, what has she done that, that I don't deserve? I didn't know about this, but in her mind I did. She's to go free. And in the end, what happens is that Jean Valjean Valjean gets his way, Fantine joins him in his home, and he nurses her back to health. And this whole experience of uh, Fantine being nursed back to health by a man she doesn't know, who she thought had harmed her, what what we asked the kids to uh, process as we watched this narrative play out is, what are the challenges facing Jean Valjean in getting Fantine to trust that he has only good intentions toward her? And what are the challenges Fantine faces as a woman who her only contact with men ever was to be brutalized by them, to be used by them, to be um, uh, disrespected by them? Um, That's her only experience of men. And now she has this man. How How is she supposed to trust his heart? So our pursuit with the kids was to literally ask them, what are all the things that must happen in Fantine? And what are all the things that Jean Valjean must do in order for her to accept his love for her, his innocent love for her? So uh, one of the things Jean Valjean says to Fantine along the way, because she's basically saying, God can't love me because I'm such a despicable person. Look what I've done. And Jean Valjean says to him, says to Fantine, Uh, God, your Father, has only ever seen you as the beautiful woman you are. Well, in that moment, she simply can't believe that's the truth about who she is. So the reason that this storyline comes up for me is, I think, and this is what we told the kids that night, um, metaphorically, we are Fantine, and metaphorically, Jean Valjean is Jesus. Jesus faces obstacles in his pursuit of us, in our ability to trust him, that he has good intention toward us, that his heart is good toward us, um, because we're broken people, and our trust has been shattered, and um, our ability to accept and receive the truth about ourselves is completely contingent upon our ability to trust the heart of Jesus. In the end, what the kids said that night, which is so true, I think, Fantine's only path forward to being a freed captive 
is for her to come to trust the heart of Jean Valjean and therefore trust Jean Valjean's opinion of her or what Jean Valjean is telling her about herself, that she is a beautiful child of God and that's the only way God sees her. In order for her to trust that reality about herself, she has to come to trust Jean Valjean's heart. And in the end, she does. And we talked uh, further about what are all the things that Jean Valjean had to do to win that trust. And it was a profound conversation, and I think it's a conversation that applies to us, too. If we're going to be set free as captives, um, the only way to do that is for us to pursue the heart of Jesus to the extent that we know it well enough that we trust him. No matter what our circumstantial reality is, our circumstances don't change our understanding of his heart, no matter what they are. And once we get to that place, we can begin to accept the truth about who we are. We can begin to trust what he says about us. So in order to trust um, the core of who we are, to be set free into who we really are, we're going to have to learn how to trust the heart of Jesus. So there, I I said a lot of stuff there too. What 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 You're sticks? On a roll today. I'm on a roll. So Becky, what sticks out to you in in maybe the story or what I've said about its comparison to our own trajectory? How does this resonate in your life? I think that this year, New Year's resolutions, which I still I, I definitely think that that the idea of taking time at the end of a year, going into a new year, evaluating where you're at, those are all very good things to do with Jesus. Um, but ultimately, we need to start believing who Jesus says that we are. We talk a lot about that. Who does Jesus say you are is actually an episode you can go back and listen to. I, there will probably be more about identity that we talk about going into 2017. But when, if we can start to believe the things that Jesus says about us, and we can, f- we can start to, to rid ourselves of the things that the the media and, and Facebook and everywhere, all these messages that are being fed to us about who they say we are, which is, you know, you don't look like a supermodel or you don't have the right career and you're not driving the right car. And those aren't, those are the things that aren't real. Those are the things that we need to shed. Um, and it, and shame, um, if we're holding on to shame or unforgiveness, those are the kinds of, of, resolutions that will help draw us closer to the heart of Jesus. Yeah, you know, everything in life, really, I'm going to make a hyperbolic statement here, everything in life depends on you and I being set free from our captivity, mm-hmm. because we have been given a great and epic purpose in our life. No matter what the outward uh, veneer of your life is like, no matter what occupation you have, it doesn't matter. You have an epic purpose at the center of who you are, because we have an epic God, one who has been telling an epic story of redemption throughout all of history, and we're, he's inviting us into that epic narrative. So we have a big part to play, but everything is contingent upon us being freed from our captivity to fully play the role that he's given us to play. So our freedom from captivity means everything in this whole deal. In fact, those who are freed from their captivity are tremendous threats to the enemy of God, because he can do nothing in the face 
of a follower of Jesus who's been freed from their captivity. There's no leverage in that person. He can't do anything to them that will accomplish any purpose he hopes to advance in the world. This is the very thing he's hoping to avoid happening in us, our freedom from captivity. And we are, I was thinking about my interview with uh, Eugene Peterson that Becky and I uh, played snippets of in our last episode. If you didn't listen to that, it's definitely one to go back and listen to. That was episode 13. But one of the things that I experienced about Eugene Peterson is um, he wasn't dismissive of himself. He wasn't uh, expressing false humility about himself. He wasn't saying, you know, uh, oh, what I've done is really nothing in comparison to what Jesus did. He, he just wasn't that interested in talking about himself. Kind of bored about it. Right. And I think it's because he's 85 years old. By his own admission, he said, all I'm trying to do is follow Jesus. He's been leaning into the heart of Jesus his whole life. And now what fascinates him truly, organically, is Jesus. That's what he's most, that's the person he's most interested in. And his own interior life, he's not as interested in. It's it's not false humility. It's simply he's he's grown to be less interested in himself. He thinks about himself less often, which is kind of hard for us to fathom, but that explains a lot of Eugene Peterson's sort of eccentric ways of answering my questions. He simply wasn't that interested in trying to help me understand the nuances of him, but he was very interested in talking about Jesus. So I think this is part of what it looks like to be freed from your captivity, and then your impact becomes explosive. I think this is really the, the, the uh, reasoning behind why the message and other things that Eugene Peterson has written, and not just him but others, has had such explosive transformative impact in people's lives, because he's been freed from his captivity, and therefore free to be exactly who he is. So uh, let's end today by talking a little bit about, so what does this look like in everyday life? What, if, if this is the, if, if I want to move toward freedom from captivity, what is it that must happen? And, and how, how can we understand Paul's story from Saul to Paul? How, how can I live a similar story without having a lightning bolt knock me off my horse? I think uh, there's a couple things I want to say first, and then Becky's got a few things. Maybe, maybe he will be a lightning bolt that knocks you off your horse, metaphorically. Um, but the first thing we can do is, is something I help the kids in our small group um, learn every week that we're with them. As you read about Jesus, and I highly encourage you to make the, the focal point of your Scripture reading to always include at least some aspect of the pursuit of Jesus. Even if you're reading in the Old Testament, you're looking for the foreshadowing of him, you know, the Jesus-centered Bible with the blue letters in the Old Testament is set up to help you see Jesus through the entire narrative. But um, especially read about Jesus in the four Gospels and portions of Acts on a consistent basis. But as you read about Jesus, what we typically do is take in information about what and how, what did he say, what's happening here, but the real focus behind that reading needs to be Um, what can I learn about the heart of Jesus from what he's just said or done? And the question I frequently ask the kids in our group is, so what do you know about the heart of Jesus based on what he just said or did? And it takes a minute for them to gear into that, because it's a different way of thinking. But what we really want to know is come to know what his heart's like, and why would he do what he does? 
And instead of skipping over the hard things, where it's hard to explain what he says or does, we instead say, let's try to understand what's going on in his heart when we study that story. So that's the first step, and that's a scripturally-based pattern in your life that's very simple. You simply ask the why behind what Jesus says and does on a consistent basis. But the second thing is, experientially in your life, apart from reading Scripture, um, how is it that we can come to know the heart of Jesus? And just based on my own experience, the, uh, a primary way I've come to, know, to understand his heart is by depending more on him. And what that means is, in the everyday ways that we live our lives, we invite him in to those things. So today I was going down, I was, I was going to an attend an event where uh, there was a, a person coming to the event that I had a feeling it was going to be a difficult encounter with this person, and I, 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 as I was walking down the stairs to go to the event, I invited Jesus into my angst. Instead of trying to figure it out and brainstorm, what am I going to say, what am I going to do, if this person says this, what will I say then? Instead of doing that, I just simply said, Jesus, what, how do you want me to approach this? What do you want me to say? What kind of presence should I bring into this encounter? And I said this while I was walking down the stairs, in a dependent way, expecting him to help me. And by the time I walked in the door, I knew what I needed to do. So um, it's not a formula, it's not cl- always clear like this, it's a messy process, but all we do is invite him in to our worries, our challenges, our angst, our opportunities, our desires, our plans, whatever it is that we develop the, a habit, almost like breathing, that we invite him into it. We just ask him, we tell him what's on our heart, and we ask for his input, we ask for his presence, we ask for his guidance and his wisdom, so that we're continuously inviting him into our situations in life, creating greater and greater dependence. And I've learned so much about his heart, because the ways that he directs me to be reveal his heart. When he tells me, uh, I want you to approach it this way, I'm reminded of why he's telling me that, because that's his heart. So those are two ways. Pursue him in scripturally by asking why questions about his heart, and depend upon him in the everyday nooks and crannies of your life. We just want to tell you thank you so much for listening to us this year. This has been such a great time, and we want to just continue into next year. So if you could just you know join uh, along, and then we're just going to get right back into this in the first week of January. Yeah, and I've already mentioned the Jesus-centered Bible as a uh, you know what? Um, I, I mean, our, uh, I led the team that created this, so of course I have vested interest in it, but you know, I'm a reader of this Bible now too, and it, it does what we set out to do, which is to create an orbit around Jesus that gets ever closer to him as you read. So I highly encourage you to check out the Jesus-Centered Bible, and, and you know, the last two-thirds of my book, Jesus-Centered Life, are called the Beeline Practices. Mm-hmm. It's just a menu of a playful experiments that will help you get closer to the heart of Jesus. They're drawn from my own life and the lives of others who are intoxicated by the presence of Jesus, and these are the patterns that we do in our lives that have naturally, organically come out of our attachment to Him that help us get closer and closer to Him. So I encourage you to check that out as well. Like I said, the the last two-thirds of that book are designed to help you live this life. 
Well, thank you so much for listening. Also remember that you can find out more information about everything we talked about today by either looking in the description of wherever you're listening to this or going to jesuscenteredlife.com. We will see you next year. Thank you so much for listening. Merry Christmas.